It may have been a cock-up at the first instance that these people fell into the hands of the police, uh, but from a fairly early stage, it became a conspiracy. In the Guildford case, I think they knew they got the wrong people. In October 1974, in a town called Guildford, two pubs were bombed. Five people were killed and 65 were injured. Is this the pub there? Seriously? I never knew that. Wow. So that film was it, um, in the name of the father. It's fantastic. It's very moving. Now the Seven Stars pub is a Costa coffee shop. Oh, I'm so sorry about what happened, man. That's, it's terrible injustice. And I'm sorry about that too. Though, you know? I mean, it's terrible. It's, it's ridiculous injustice. Nothing's been done about it now. I never knew that was the pub. I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked. Today's actually 25 years since I got out. Yeah, the 19th. It's the 19th of October 2014, 25 years exactly, since Paddy Armstrong was released from prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, and it's 40 years now since that was a pub. This was a guy that fought for me, but my solicitor, he fought for me the whole way. And he's actually come. Thank you for coming up. Thank you. Cheers, thanks a lot. Good luck for everything, man. Wow. So... What about? Uh, Guinness time. No, it's Guinness time. I can't believe it. Already? <laughs> what time is it? Noon. Noon, ah. 64-year-old Paddy goes about life quietly. He's never been one for the media spotlight. He doesn't like to grumble or complain about things. Back in the 50s and 60s, Paddy was an ordinary lad living just off the Falls Road, a Catholic area of Belfast. Well, it wasn't a bad place to grow up in. Everybody knew each other, everybody was friendly with each other. Left school when I was about 16, I think. Another young lad living in the area was Ronnie McCartney. We all used to knock about in the Falls Road, but Paddy was always, he was a bit older than us, not much older. Always well-dressed and full of himself, but that was Paddy. And he carried himself off well. Although we were at different ages, Ronnie still is a good friend. So. Paddy and Ronnie would take different paths in life. I became involved in the IRA when I was 16 years of age. As a result of that there, I was asked to go to England in 1974, which I did as an active member of the IRA. The trouble started and it was totally different then, especially when the army came in. Got really bad then, it was really serious work. You could see the army shooting or the Protestants shooting over their roofs and bullets coming over like the other man said. People were very annoyed for what they were doing. Paddy was the type of guy, like, you know what I mean? He just wasn't into it in any shape or form. Whereas people like myself became emotionally involved before politically involved because of what was happening. Paddy just didn't want to know. Paddy didn't have the opportunity to get married until later in life. Today he lives in Dublin with his wife Caroline, who teaches music. Caroline, do you want a cup of tea? Coffee? 
Their two children, Sophie and John, and their dog, Bobby. What do you want, Bobby? You shouldn't be on the kitchen. Bobby's in here lying around. His favourite drink is Guinness, and he likes doing the crossword. Do you know who the brother, the older brother of Moses was? Aaron, is it? Aaron. It's funny how this, this built Aaron were two years, like, you know. And he supports Arsenal. Paddy and Caroline are going to England for an anniversary with a difference. It's 25 years since Paddy walked free from the old Bailey. He's going to show Caroline around the London that he knew. Paddy, I can't believe you and me are going on our own. Isn't that crazy? Like I don't have any hassle to worry about. It's more than 40 years since Paddy took the boat to London to find work. The only reason I went to England because the priest was saying, Paddy, you better have gone over to England to get work, and I went. <laughs> But uh, nobody knows what's going to happen to you in life. I mean, I didn't think I was going to go over there and end up in prison for something I didn't do. That's life. A long, long time ago. The next station is Kilburn. We're off the next station. It's very leafy, isn't it, though? It's... Is this on the edge of North London? Kilburn High Road. Having to stroll down memory lane. <laughs> and I'm trying to get me bearings because half of the things are here now. They weren't here when I was around. <laughs> I went, must have been 69, 70. I went over and I stayed with a couple of, couple of guys that I met up with on the Belton side, and we, we ended up getting an apartment just round from, what do you call that famous dance hall over there? Like Altimore. Crack was good, you know, I mean, it was brilliant then. So, Paddy, does anything ring about? Yeah, that's where I live, my first place I live was down here. And the cricket room was there. Now, here we go now. Are you sure that is exactly where it gets? I'm telling you, it looks like it's going to Altimore, I can't believe it. I thought it was still there. And all the times. How long her? I was a little bit of a hippie. <laughs> so it was. I enjoyed it. I won't say any more on that subject. <laughs> Bell bottoms and Afghan jackets. People thought hippies didn't work, but everybody was working. But they, most of them all used to congregate in Cricklewood at the pub. There's a Cricklewood pub, I think, there. Everybody, Irish person, used to go in there off their, off their work. Because that's where you got your tax changed. <laughs> It was the thing at the time to live in a squat. And it wasn't a big deal. We were actually paying for electricity and that, so <laughs> most nights you'd have about 10, 15 people in it anyway. Different people came and different people left. Number 15. That's five. Yeah. There's 15 at the end. Yeah, that's it, right at the end, yeah. And there's a note on yeah. the door. Welcome back, where's your rent? <laughs> Over 40 years since I lived in that house. Around that time, Paddy met a 17-year-old girl from Newcastle, Carol Richardson. I met her in the pub. We had a great, great laugh together, so we had. But I couldn't understand that Geordie accent. They ended up living together in a squat. 
46 miles north of a pretty town called Guildford. We're actually off to Guildford to see Officer Marsh Lister. And a dear friend. So I'm looking forward to seeing him again. How you doing? You looking good? So you're looking good yourself since the last time I've seen you. Well, they are too much Solicitor Alistair Logan lives in Guildford with his wife Pat. In October 2014, just a couple of streets from the main shopping area, lies a vacant furniture shop, which, until 5th of October 1974, was a pub. Welcome to the Horse and Groom. It was a furniture store last, but they've obviously vacated. And somebody's tied some flowers here, so I'm sure that this is something to do with today. Uh, well, it would have been with the 5th, 5th of October. On the 5th of October, the picturesque town of Guildford was rocked by two bombs in the Horse and Groom and the Seven Stars. Both pubs were close to the heart of the town. That was the bar in there, and to the left was the seating under which the bomb was placed. With the cheapest beer in town, the Horse and Groom was a popular haunt for soldiers from the nearby army barracks. Friday night was a really busy night in Guildford. The clubs, the pubs. On that Friday night in October, 46 miles away in London, Paddy's girlfriend Carol was getting ready to go out. She and her friend Lisa went barefoot to see a band called Jack the Lad at a college in Elephanton Castle. I was actually babysitting the, the Labrador she had. Ah, oh, it was a lovely old dog, a lovely big dog. She just used to stay and watch it. I said, no, I'm going to bring me mates. No, you got to watch me dog. That was the night of the bombings. The only reason I knew was because I knew I had a dog <laughs> to look after. My wife, Pat, was in fact in the town on the night the bombs went off, although she had left about half an hour, I think, before the first explosion. Between the two pubs, five people were killed and 65 injured. You don't really expect it to be in your town, do you, these sort of things? Just made you apprehensive of going into a pub or going doing things and then thinking of the people that died as well. It was awful. A month later, another bomb exploded, this time in the King's Arms pub in Woolwich, where two people were killed and 26 were injured. Opposite what was the Horse and Groom pub is a small garden which now commemorates the victims of the bombing. Paddy is reluctant to go in. I just think that probably people still think I don't it. That it would have been wrong, you know what I mean, to me come in and... Your life was taken the, away from yeah, you for a long time. Yeah, at the time, end of the day, yeah, you know what I mean, so... so this, <laughs> this lady here that did so much to get him this... But this she's emotional. <laughs> it's OK, look. It's OK. Really nice to see this. Yeah. And I'm glad I actually come in to have a look. It yeah, does so. you good in the end. Yeah. So. Right now, I think we need a pint of Guinness now, though. 
<laughs> Belfast man Paul Hill was the first to be arrested under the new Prevention of Terrorism Act. Two days later, another Belfast man, Jerry Conlon, was arrested. Jerry was a childhood acquaintance of Paddy's. Jerry only lived around the corner from me in Belfast. So. Paul lived about six or seven streets away again. We all came from the same area. Not friends, we used to play football and that, but we knew each other's family. Because half the times I'd be in somebody else's house and I'd be in my house eating my dinner and I'd eat their dinner. <laughs> but they had only seen each other a couple of times at parties and in pubs in London. On the 3rd of December 1974, almost three months after the bombings, Carol was out with a friend and Paddy was partying hard and hanging out in another squat with his friends. I went over to see my friends in the other squat. We're all sitting there talking and having a laugh. And next thing, the glass broke. Next thing, these police were coming in from everywhere. <laughs> one of them says, you Patrick Joseph Armstrong? I said, no, my name's Paddy Armstrong. And one of them that's him. That's the one you want. And then the car, they went, I said, what's this all about? They said, you know Gilford? Yeah, I says, I was watching that on the news. Why? I said, you're Nick Ford. I was trying to sober up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what's going on here? Because they said to me, do you know Jerry Connell? I says, yeah, I grew up with him. I met him in London there a few days ago. Well, he's been there for years. <laughs> how, how, how did you get dragged into this thing? What made you think? I'm the clue. Well, well, I'm not saying so. We just leave it to that. The same day, Carol Richardson was arrested while visiting her mother. Carol, Paddy, Jerry and Paul would become known as the Guilford Four, a name that would stick with them for the rest of their lives. Seven other people were also arrested and accused of making the bombs. They would become known as the Maguire Seven. By this time, Ronnie McCartney had moved to England to be part of an IRA active service unit. When I went to England, I went there for flat in London. There was operations carried out from that bedsit, and uh, I met uh, people from the IRA, who then became known as the Balcom Street Four. The Balcom Street Four were among a small but deadly group of active IRA bombers in England. But when Paddy, Jerry, Paul and Carol were arrested, the IRA men were confused. And I actually turned around and I said to, uh, I think it was Brenton Dowd, I said, they ain't anything to do with us. He says, no. And he looked at me and he says, what can we do? If they're arrested, they can all, they've arrested them, they're not going to be looking for us. It was reality of the situation at the time. Like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, we said, like, that's good that they were arrested. Like, you know what I mean? Let's get real about this here. They weren't going to turn up and say, hey, Excuse me, or Mr. Magistrate, or Mr. Policeman. Wasn't them that done that there, it was us. Like, to be quite honest with you, the IRA wouldn't have touched Paddy Armstrong, or Paul Hill, or Jerry Conlon, right? You understand, right? They wouldn't even look into the ranks of the IRA, right? They just wouldn't have touched them in any shape, form, or what have you. They weren't the calibre. Driving around Guildford with Alistair brings back some not so nostalgic memories for Paddy. Police station, it's behind the trees there. They've grown up since 1974. 
Well, at least you were beaten up by an assistant chief constable. Oh, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it sure. wasn't an ordinary constable, was <laughs> yeah. it, Mr. Armstrong? No. It was an assistant <laughs> chief constable. One of the best. <laughs> Surrey's finest. Surrey's finest. Paddy was held for seven days before he was allowed to see a solicitor. Sheltered. Sheltered. Getting very little sleep, and I had three police officers question me. And when they were getting the compressioner to me, they lifted me up and put my head out the window and said they were going to throw me out of it. <laughs> they threatened it to our mums in Belfast and your sister up in Scotland. My, my brother and I lost his job with the government because of it. But we don't say much about it because you know, nobody's going to believe you anyway. So. Sleep deprived and petrified, Paddy and the others all signed confessions to say that they had bombed the pubs in Guildford. They were all charged with murder. On the eighth day, he was entitled to see a solicitor. I was a general high street practitioner, so I was doing knockabout stuff, really, anything that came through the door. I got a call from the legal aid clerk at Guildford Magistrates Court, and she said, do you want a legal aid certificate to act on behalf of one of the bombers? And I thought to myself at the time, bombers? Sounds like they've been convicted already. And uh, so I said, no, I didn't want it. And she rang me back at two o'clock in the afternoon and said she'd been round all the firms in Guildford and no one would take a legal aid certificate. Would I change my mind? And I said, yes, I would. And I got Patrick Armstrong, capital A, top of the list. He says, only, listen, I'm one of the duty solicitor that's on. He says, I don't do these type of things. I mean, it's a big thing to him, because he lives in Guildford. He took my case, I'm glad he did. He said that after a day or two, without sleep, he was signing, or willing to sign, whatever they put in front of him. Chris Mullen is a former Labour MP and journalist who wrote articles asserting the innocence of the Guildford Four and others who were wrongfully convicted of crimes at that time. And then they said, right, we're going to take you for a drive around Guildford and you can show us where you went to plant the bombs. He was anxious to cooperate because he was desperate by this time. I was taking them up one-way streets and everything. They said, you don't really know Guildford. And I went, no, I told you, I've never been here. doesn't matter. I've <laughs> never been to Guildford in my life. <laughs> Didn't even know it was, where it was. <laughs> and in the end, they got fed up with this and they took him back and they threw him in the cell and... After a while, a, a face appeared at the flap in the door and a voice said, that confession you've given us, it's a load of fairy tales, isn't it? So he said, yes. You didn't do it, did you? No. One of the Guildford police walked by and up the, the hatch of the cell and he said, listen, we know you, you didn't do it, we're going to do yours anyway. So that was it. By the end of four weeks, I thought, I'm getting to know this man and this case doesn't smell right. That's the hall where we were first brought. But a courthouse. And why but were we brought there? Because there's too many barristers to go to the other place. <laughs> they right, all the stuff. Too it? many barristers, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the first day of committal proceedings, the barristers were taken to the local club for lunch by the prosecution barristers. And we went to the Wimpy Bar down the road. And there were just the four of us. Um, and I said to them... I have to tell you, I don't think my guy did it. And they looked at me like that and they said, actually, we think ours didn't do it either. And we were there like a bunch of conspirators whispering to each other, I don't think he did it. I don't think she did it. 
it was like you were saying something treasonable. The place was covered in armed police officers. Roads were blocked off. Blue lights were flashing everywhere. Um, people standing there in police uniforms with large bulges under their arms, whether they were carrying sidearms and that sort of stuff. And it was intimidating. Well, he was charged with five counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to cause explosions, and um, he was facing an unending life sentence. You know, there wasn't much else he could be charged with. The prosecution had confessions, but Alistair and the defence team were hoping to use alibi evidence. Paddy didn't have an alibi because he had been alone in the squat with the dog. I mean, a lot of it started to turn on Karen because Carol's alibi seemed to be rock steady. Uh, you had to have fallen off a Christmas tree from a great height to believe uh, uh, the story that the prosecution spun in order to break her alibi because she had been at a, a dance in, or a gig, I suppose you call it these days, to college in, in the Elephant and Castle. Then it turned out that she had a photograph taken with one of the band. Next, the opening in London this morning of the trial of three Irishmen and a girl of 17 on charges of murdering five people in an explosion at a public house in Guildford, Surrey. When they charged us, I said, not guilty. And when we went to court, every police officer was up there telling lies. So I said to Jerry, no, we're, we're no chance of getting up with this. We thought the same. This was a poorly constructed case, which was created by liars. Paddy was given a life sentence to serve no less than 35 years. I was sentenced to the biggest recommendation to be served in Britain. They had a debate and hang him before our trial, so we could have got home instead. Could have had to suspend the sentence, swing him from side to side. So. <laughs> Must be a taxi rank over there, look. Hi there. Right. We're going to uh, Wandsworth, where the prison is. You want to go to the prison? Yeah, outside it, anyway. <laughs> the horse place I went to was Brixham, home or mound, and then I went to Bournemouth Groves. It's a long night. At the time of the conviction, I think it was a hugely depressing time, certainly for me. I felt that there had been a miscarriage of justice, and I really couldn't at that time see how we were going to put it right. Paddy's old friend, Ronnie McCartney, would also end up in prison. Paddy in prison was a pacifist, laid back. He was very well liked by uh, most prisoners. In actual fact, like, you know, you had some of the prison staff wrapped around his wee finger, like, you know. That's a gate where you go in. There's sort of a holding area where you go and then you wait there until they tell you about what wing you're going to and what cell. You can see the screws in there and the windows where the bars are there. It's nice to see it again. Look at it without having to go into it. <laughs> Paddy and Carol tried to stay in contact in the beginning. I've seen Carol a couple of times because we got into prison visits. I was took the blame for her being in because she was only in prison because she was going out with me, so I felt very sad about that and bitter about it, you know what I mean? So... She used to laugh at me and say, don't be silly. The first sign of a break in the six-day siege. One of the gunmen appeared on the balcony. In 1976, a group of IRA men, known as the Balcombe Street Gang, were captured by the police after a siege in London. 
and the turning point had been the terrorists' agreement to talk again on the field telephone which they had rejected three days earlier. One man, Joe O'Connell, was questioned by the anti-terrorist squad. What was the first job you did when you came to England? Ah, says O'Connell, that was the Guildford job and you've done someone for that. Are you telling us we got the wrong people for Guildford? And O'Connell says yes. Were they any part of your lot? No, says O'Connell, I've no idea who they are. Never met them before, they're nothing to do with us. This is very serious, says the anti-terrorist squad commander. The stage seemed set for a successful appeal. I thought we might be on our chance, but I wasn't banking on it anyway. The Balcom Street unit actually went to the appeal court and actually proved that they were the ones who carried out the bombings in Guildford and Woolwich and that Paul Hill, Paddy Armstrong, Carl Richardson, Terry Cullen had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And that was perfectly clear, right? The judges just sat there stony-faced and said, we've heard nothing new, take them away. And uh, we lost the appeal and therefore we lost any right to have the case reopened. And one has to ask why they did it. And my belief is that there was a feeling, certainly on the part of some of those involved, that these were small lives that could be thrown away to protect great reputations because many of those involved subsequently rose very high in the, in the legal system. It was 1977 and the future looked bleak. Huge depression. Not Paddy. I can remember him putting his arm round my shoulder and saying, oh, don't worry about it, the truth will come out, you know. And I'm thinking, he's doing the time, you know. I've got nothing left in my can. I can't do anything. Supporting the Guildford Four in the early 1980s wasn't a great way to win friends. I used to get a postcard every year, a saucy postcard from a seaside resort from someone who obviously went on holiday to the same place every year that was always just addressed to Chris Mullin, the IRA, Sunderland. And it always got to me. Bomb threats, letters, sentenced to death by the National Front with a long three-page document that described in detail how they intended to carry it out. Alistair's family life suffered and his first marriage broke down. My wife was not enthusiastic, but then I don't believe that uh, the breakdown of any marriage is... Uh, solely the responsibility of one party. Alistair and Pat married a few years later. When we got married, I don't think that there was ever a Saturday or a Sunday Alistair didn't work all day Saturday, and Sunday he would work nearly all day on Sunday. I didn't see how Paddy was going to get out unless somebody kept hammering away at this case and you couldn't sort of ring up somebody else and say, right, I've done my bit, now it's your turn. There was no money, there was no... Knowledge about the case, there was, you were left holding the, the baby, as it were. Now languishing in jail for the foreseeable future, life was also taking a toll on Paddy. His old friend Ronnie was on the same wing as him. He didn't do prison easy as a young person. To me, he was confident. To me, he had the swagger, the, the banter. The Paddy Armstrong I seen after that, there was a totally different person. Because Paddy was a kind of lonely person in prison, like, you know. He had a wee bit of a nervous breakdown. He was finding it very hard to cope with imprisonment. He just seemed withdrawn into himself even more. Not coming out of the cell, 
hygiene. You knew he was struggling because there was no real medical care, no real mental care. Like it. And the only way you could deal with it was to be with him, to talk to him, let him know like people that had cared. I think that was the worst time I had to know me. I'm in a situation where I, I can't do anything, so the, the only way to do it is you either fight it all the time or relax it and say, okay, right, this is where I'm going to be for the next certain amount of years. Prison is prison. I don't think anything ever prepares you for prison, right? But the fact of the matter was, right, I was prepared for the consequences of my action. Paddy Armstrong wasn't prepared for the consequences of doing nothing and end up in prison in the same situation as himself. The 80s rumbled on and slowly the campaign for their release gained momentum. People did do a lot of work for us. But when we first went in, there was nobody. <laughs> I mean, so all of us, there was persevering and, and, and he managed to get it all done. Mr Hurd's come under enormous pressure to reopen this case but until very recently, he didn't think there was enough new evidence. The false confessions were uncovered, and finally, the Crown dropped its case against the four. The case will be heard in the appeal court in several months' time. David Rose, News at 10, Central London. Ladies and gentlemen, there are minor delays on the Baker Lee line because of an earlier service disruption. There's the old Bailey there. See the scales and the sword. Scale of justice, the old Bailey. Oh. Supposed to be justice. I don't believe in the justice. I could. I think that the scales went that way. <laughs> Libra. It, it's Paddy's horoscope sign. No, it's got scales. scales. <laughs> and the prison we left, partly we were all cheering. I thought the longest day of my life was when I went into prison. I was waiting to get released from prison was even longer. <laughs> Paddy and Jerry were taken to court the next day, where they joined Carol and Paul and their families. Well, we, you weren't looking behind, you were sitting there, because my family were there and everything. We all had flowers on our, on our lapel and everything. Oh, champ. I was present in the appeal court when Lord Lane, the Lord Chief Justice, through clenched teeth, quashed uh, the Guildford convictions. But then everybody started cheering me. <laughs> There was a great eruption of cheering and, um, yeah, which didn't normally happen in British courts. It was a very exciting moment. And then Lord Lane sitting stony-faced and, and the two uh, judges on either side of him sitting stony-faced. This was not a good day for them, but it was a good day for everybody else in court. Jerry, Jerry came out and Jerry went over there. And, uh, I'd, I'd love to come out the front like for Jerry, but I came out for Carl. My sister, we all go out the front. She says, no, I'm not going. She wanted to go out the back quietly. I went, OK, I'll go with you. So, I felt it was better going out for Carol than letting her go on her own. Like. His first thoughts was for Carol, you know, that she wouldn't be left on her own. Like, he felt responsible that she she had been imprisoned in the first place. But Jerry's done well, sure. He's done well. <laughs> I think the authorities are quite keen that like the others, he should leave by a back door because they knew very well that this wasn't going to be a good day for British justice. Um, but Jerry insisted, God bless him, on coming out the front door. He was fired as from a catapult. He came propelled out of the door to, this, to the waiting world. I've been in prison 15 years for something I didn't do, for something I didn't know anything about. 
totally innocent man. I watched my father die in a British prison for something he didn't do. He is innocent. The Maguires is innocent. Let's hope that Birmingham six is. Fifteen years after it was taken from him, Paddy was given his old Afghan coat and a bus ticket, and sent on his way. Come out of a different world entirely. <laughs> Alistair took Paddy to Guildford to live with him while he adjusted to life on the outside. He didn't even know what, how to cross the road properly. He didn't know what shopping was because he hadn't done it for such a long time. He'd just been given what he was going to have to eat. Paddy, how long did you live with Alistair when you came out? About six months, nine months or something. When I first came out and stayed with you. About months. six months. It took us that long to train you to walk in the street without getting killed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and stop me buying all bars of chocolates and everything. <laughs> With ten pound notes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Paddy lost his father when he was quite young. I don't know what age, but he died young. So Alistair really is his father figure. We got money from Yorkshire TV for doing a programme for them, and then we got a down payment from the government, 50,000, I think it was. He went up to Scotland, and he was just conned by everybody, buying drinks. He spent his money, and what little bit of compensation he got was diminishing very quickly, and he'd come back down and see us and said, I've got no money left, what do I do, what do I do? And they got given it in gradual tranches. 25 years after his release... Paddy and his wife Caroline are back in Guildford for a celebration lunch with old friends Alistair and Pat. Oh, to our guests. Oh. 25 years. Well done, mate. You've done well. Thank you. Blessing. Yeah. And Caroline. Yeah, One of the best clients I ever had. You have to learn to start living with it and just doing your normal life. It was hard to be normal. Paddy and Jerry found themselves in the spotlight. Rock stars and politicians all wanted to hang out with them and share in their newfound freedom. Mad when we came out. Best time we had when me and Jerry drove across America with a couple of friends. It was brilliant. Me and Jerry had great times together. And then he went back to Ireland. And that's when he met Caroline. Thank goodness. It was just heaven for us because we just felt as though somebody really cares, somebody really loves him. And it was just divine, you know, because I'm not old enough to quite be his mother, but you do feel as though they're your child. I met Paddy in the International Blues Bar in Dublin in 1996. It was actually on my birthday, the 29th of June. And I was out with a couple of friends, and my brother was playing there, so we went along just for a night out, and I met him on that night, and March 1998, we got married there were a couple of things outstanding. Parliament decided to hold a public inquiry, presided over by Sir John May, but it ended up being held in private. Alistair wants very much to see the evidence, submitted in secret, that cleared the justice system of any wrongdoing. And it's at the moment, there seems to be some doubt about when the information is going to be released. And there have been newspaper reports that, in fact, the period has been extended to 75 years. So 75 years from 1993 would be uh, probably well after anybody who was ever connected with the case remained alive. People say you're a bomber, or I'm IRA, or whatever, but I'm not. You know, but it sticks, it's, that's there all the way through your life. In 2005, British Prime Minister Tony Blair 
made a formal apology to the Guildford Four. So what was the feeling like when we got out, when we were found that guilty at the end? Not good, Paddy. Yeah. Not good, because nobody actually 100% believed it. They thought you got away with a technicality. And that's what was really upsetting, because yeah. we knew it wasn't. And it was really... The final thing that happened that really got everybody to believe was when you got the letters from the Prime Minister yeah. telling you you're innocent people. And I, well, I was glad he'd done it anyway, because it means that <laughs> you got it from the head man, that, that's it. After her release, Carol Richardson disappeared from the public eye. She stayed in touch with Alistair and Pat. Carol wanted to protect a husband who was never involved in any way. Uh, she herself was not attracted by publicity or talking about it, and she had a daughter to protect as well. Carol died in 2012 at the age of 56. So you've got Surrey Police. In the memorial garden in Guildford, Alistair shows Paddy the wreaths laid two weeks ago on the 40th anniversary of the bombing. There's some individual ones here for those who died, William Forsyth, Paul Craig, John Hunter, Anne Hamilton, Caroline Slater... These were the two Scots guards, so they got the thistles and the roses for the others. This is the first time I've ever seen anything here. We lay the wreath every year, and ours is usually the only one. That one down there, in memory of those who lost their lives in 1974, coupled with Carol, who died in 2012, and Jerry, who died in 2014. This is the second year we've had Carol's name on, but of course it's the first year we've had Jerry's name on. I saw you only seen him once before he died, which was in my local around the corner. He was, we sat for about two hours and we had, we had a great laugh. And stitches we were. And this is even talking about prison and the things that happened and the things we done. Like I think that's because we knew what each other happened and we, we could laugh about it and joke about about things that happened and things that we'd done stupidly when we come out. Paul Hill now lives in America. Paddy and Alistair became more than client and solicitor. It took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. I have to say, if somebody had said to me, well, Logan, if you take this on in 1974, you won't get rid of it for 29 years, I might have said no. <laughs> but damage is done when crimes are committed. One has to remember that 65 people were injured in the Guildford pub bombings, and that's damage. And uh, so all of us have got uh, probably some downsides. Paddy, I'm sure, has got some, but he's good. The reward, really, is seeing him being able to come out of this veil of tears in a way that he is able to function normally and to enjoy life and to give uh, the love that he does to his wife and his children. People say that, oh, you were the saving grace of, of Paddy. Now, I know Paddy had led a kind of a, a party lifestyle. When I met him, we went out to a lot of parties and clubs. But then we, we settled down. To be honest, I would say Paddy is really the rock of our family. That he's, the, he's very steady, calm, very consistent and predictable. You know, he's, he's a routine to his day, even though he doesn't work outside the home. And, uh, you know, he's a fantastic father and support. So I suppose we've helped one another, you know, in different ways. I'm going to be over the moon now to get back and see my kids and tell them what happened on the trip. 
and hopefully they're going to be interested in that to hear all about it. Paddy just lives for the day. Pop in the clue, uh, yeah. There's no forward planning <laughs> well, at is, all. There is forward planning. When I come out, <laughs> yeah, but now there is because you have kids and that, but when I come out... No, but you do very much live for the day. You don't kind of stress about what's happening tomorrow. Uh, yeah. If I'm worried about stuff that's going to happen next, you'd always say, what's the point in worrying? You know, there's no... There's no well, stre- you know, I'm the most stressed person. He's the yeah, least stressed person. I stress the family out. <laughs> no, and Paddy diffuses that stress. You don't, you don't stress it. <laughs> it stresses out. It's just... I mean... I think that's why we get on well together, because we're, we're totally opposite of each other. <laughs> and I do, I do love you, so... Uh, and thank, thank you for coming with me. Cheers, my dear. Cheers.